Welcome into the Football 4 Podcast. We are about to preview week five of the college football season. Dan Wolken here with USA Today Sports. Have Paul Meyerberg joining me today. A lot of fallout from Kelly Bryant's transfer from Clemson. Is James Franklin overrated as a head coach? Dovetailing into the Penn State-Ohio State matchup this weekend, as well as all the other big games, including Stanford going to Notre Dame. We attack all that and more. Stay with us on the Football 4 Podcast by USA Today Sports. The way we play is embarrassing. I told you guys, it's embarrassing the way we play. And I'm the head coach of this embarrassing group of guys. So I'd really rather not have any more questions about, is it okay to lose this game? It's never okay to lose a game. And I'm going to tell you what, you hold coaches accountable, players accountable, hold the damn officials accountable. It's garbage. Print that. Tweet that. Okay, back on the Football 4 podcast. It's a one-podcast week. Sorry about that, guys. But if we're only going to do one, might as well make it a good one. So Paul Meyerberg is here. Paul, uh, how are you? How's New York? I'm good, Dan. I'm ex- it's okay. I'm really excited, really excited for to watch North Carolina play football tonight on Thursday, September 27th. I can't even tell you. I am so excited. I'm, I'm also being fantastic. This North Carolina-Miami game, which we'll probably talk about, has me almost in the dumps because I already know how it's going to go. Well, how's it going to go, Mr. Clairvoyant? Miami is going to win by 30, and North Carolina is going to look terrible in doing so. How dare you talk about North Carolina, winners of one in a row against Pittsburgh? That is true. I just That, to me, was an aberration. That was an aberration. Hey, by the way, great I stat. I think you're lose this tonight. Great stat coming out of that game somebody sent me. Since the 2016 election, Pitt has won two ACC games, both against North Carolina. What does that say about Pitt? <sighs> that's not good. That's not good. Thanks, Mr. President, I guess. I mean, that's not good. Which is weird because every for the last two years – the same like kind of preseason chatter about Pitt. And I love that we're just leaping right into this. The same preseason chatter about Pitt is like, well, this is the year they're going to go eight and four, maybe nine and three, and be a team that can challenge a Miami and the uh, Coastal. And it's just not true. They're just like an average football team. And I guess that's okay for Pitt, or maybe not. Actually, that stat's not right. They beat Miami last year. What am I talking about? How many did you say? You said, said how many? I said they'd won two. Maybe it's three. Let's think of it. Hold on. All right, I got to pull this up yeah. now. Now, see, you we got off on a tangent because you brought up the Thursday night game, and now I'm out here giving you fake statistics and fake news, Dan. I mean, let's take a look here. Let's see if we can think of them off the head. We got none this year. No, 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 no. Got Georgia Tech. Didn't they beat? Didn't they beat Tech? Yeah, they beat Tech two weeks ago. They did. Who gave you that stat? That sounds like like a, like a fake stat. That's a fake stat, whoever provided that. They also beat the... Um, no, I'm sorry. I, I had it the other way around. North Carolina's won two ACC games, and they, they're both over Pitt. That's, that, that's the stat. Yeah, there you go. That's the stat. I love that one. That was my favorite one coming out of the weekend. That was my favorite. How did I have that wrong? wrong? Or did uh, I North- say... I, I, I don't know what happened. No, you said it wrong, but you weren't like, it wasn't like you were way off base. You had the teams. You had a team. Yeah. You had the stat, right? 
It's yeah, but that's the stat. Is North Carolina two ACC wins since November 2016, and they're both over Pitt. Pat Narduzzi should be ashamed of that. And he's got a seven-year yeah, contract. Seven-year contract. It's just yeah, starting. Heard, um, have you heard in the last six days or five days that like this kind of rising, uh, and it happens after you lose. But it's like, and when I say heard, it's not like I heard from fellow coaches or people in the business, but just from like fans that there's like kind of a rising. I don't know how to phrase this to make it seem like. It's, it's not as big as the rising tide sounds like, but there's like a vocal portion that's kind of not happy with how things are going at Pitt. Oh, 100%. And I yeah. guess that's warranted. But but at the same time, like like you said, he's going nowhere, like nowhere. Like, I, I don't even know what would have to happen this year to me for him to lose that job or feel a lot like he's obligated to like poke around and see what else is available. So, you know, I, I just I, I think that's an important point to make about Pitt kind of being crappy is that. Narduzzi's their guy, and I think they're fully invested, in, obviously, in, in what he's got, what he's done, and what they think that he can do over, as you said, a seven-year contract, which is not a lot of guys have that. Well, and just to go back briefly to the Thursday night game before we move on, I am interested to see how Nikosi Perry looks at quarterback, because I didn't get to see that game last week where they made the change. And look, Malik Rogier, um, nice kid, good leader, I thought – got all he could out of his talent. The problem is he just doesn't have that much talent. And that's really, as long as he was the quarterback of Miami, there was going to be a ceiling on what they could do. Yeah, and you knew that all offseason. And I think you're, you're, my only takeaway, like, going into LSU, and as Rick, like, in so many words, said that Rosier's our guy all spring and all through the fall, is that Perry hadn't developed. So either he just needed some reps, or something turned on in practice, or whatever, but in limited duty against Savannah, I know it's Savannah, he looked good. Obviously against Florida International, he looked good. He's going to make mistakes. He's a kid. He'll throw a couple picks. But like you said, I think the ceiling for Miami this year, when like you think about judging a team by how they play in November and in the postseason, I think Perry obviously gives them a higher ceiling. And then you have to also think about the future. I think giving Perry the job right now makes Miami probably very likely a better team down the road this season and obviously down the road in 2019 and beyond. All right, well, let's dip into the big story of the week, which was Kelly Bryant up and leaving Clemson, not even giving Dabo a face-to-face see you later. I mean, this guy just basically texted that he was going to transfer, which uh, that's a pet peeve of mine, which we can get into. But let's first deal with the substance of it. I guess we can't be terribly surprised when you consider – the combination of him losing his starting job to Trevor Lawrence, which I think is pretty predictable, and the four-game redshirt rule, which allows him to retain his eligibility and leave and play somewhere next year for his senior year and not have to sit out and not lose his year of, of eligibility. So, like, it's a no-fault divorce from what I can see. I think it's clearly inconvenient for Clemson because if they do have an injury to Trevor Lawrence, they're kind of screwed. But that's the rule book that we have. Dabo wasn't going to complain too much. But what did you make of just kind of how that all went down? And one of the things that, that struck me just right away was there was all this talk for weeks and weeks and weeks about how 
great Clemson was handling the quarterback situation and how everyone was happy and they were going to be the team that defied the logic of you had to have one quarterback. And I mean, all this stuff was written propaganda, propaganda, propaganda. And yet the minute they change quarterbacks, the kids out of there, clearly there was more going on behind the scenes. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack on this and you named a few of it. I mean, there was like a big story as, as you've written about how Brian is the poster child for, for this new red shirt rule, which I think is a positive um, in the general sense. And, and you wrote that yesterday, Wednesday. Is that right? That is correct. Right. Um, so I think that's obviously a takeaway. If you just focus on Clemson, to me, no divorce is pretty. You know, no breakup is good, you know. And, and I think it only would have worked. And, you know, as, as we wrote and as we said, hey, this looks like it's going to work nicely. It only worked if Bryant was a starter and Lawrence was the backup because that was the only scenario where those – two individuals would be content in their roles. If you flipped it, Lawrence is obviously ecstatic, but Bryant um, clearly couldn't handle it. Um, I'm happy that he's going somewhere, and you have to look at it from his perspective. And, I, and we'll try to look at it from both sides. If I if I focus on Bryant's perspective, I, I think there were a few people in our profession who said, well, you have a chance to win a national title. Who knows when you'll be needed? You may come in a game. Lawrence may roll his ankle next week and you've got to play four weeks that stuff's all conjecture uh, the latter part the first part is he's already got a national title you know what i mean he's already won a national title as a backup quarterback does he want another maybe but probably not and obviously not um kelly bryant thinks that he can play at the next level god bless him i'm not sure if he can play quarterback i think he has the athletic ability to do so he wants to play football he was not going to play at clemson um so i don't fault his decision i think if he you look at on the field, yeah, the big concern is for Clemson. Like I said, Trevor Lawrence rolls his ankle. Who plays? Hunter Renfro? I mean, who plays quarterback in that scenario if Trevor Lawrence goes down? I really don't know. So it opens up Clemson to that scenario, which is, to me, the only scenario on paper that's going to derail Clemson getting into the college football playoff is right now losing Lawrence because they don't have the depth. Um, but in terms of where he goes next, he'll go to a system that fits him. Obviously, you'll hear about Arkansas. I think Auburn is very intriguing. There are all kinds of places that would have him, UCLA, whatever. Um, here, the big takeaway to me is what you wrote, that this is an example of how the redshirt rule will be used. Otherwise, this is pretty SOP standard operating procedure, isn't it? I mean, a guy loses the job and transfers. The only thing that's weird is the timing. Well, sure, right. And, and it does speak to, I think, an interesting question, which is are, are the top programs going to continue – recruiting quarterbacks the same way they have been because if you look at the Clemsons, Ohio States, Alabama, Georgia, the philosophy's been just bring in bring in a five-star in every class, right? Or the highest ranked quarterback you can recruit in every class and then you get them on campus and you let them sort out who's going to play and then whoever doesn't play leaves, right? But they do it in either right after the spring or right before camp or maybe during camp. And so you have at least a plan B going into the season. This now opens up the possibility that they're going to do it three or four games in, which really does hurt the team in theory, Um, which again, I have no issue with that. I mean, coaches get paid millions of dollars to problem solve and I'm not going to feel sorry for Dabo Sweeney or whoever this impacts and they shouldn't feel sorry for themselves. And certainly in Dabo's case, I don't think he does, but I just wonder like, if it changes the philosophy of we're just going to bring in one five-star after another, or do you have a guy that you sort of groom to be your, your backup, you know, and that, and that he's happy sort of being that. 
Yeah, it's a great question. And I actually have an answer for you because when I was working on a story about freshman QBs prior to this, about two weeks ago, I asked that question um, because of the idea that kids transfer quicker. Are you ever tempted to recruit? I mean, whatever star you want to assign to it, say for Clemson, do you want to recruit two QBs in the class and have one be a three-star developmental or a three-star kid who's just happy to be at Clemson, whatever? And the answer, universally, and that's talking to, let me think if I can remember who I spoke to about it, James Franklin, Justin Fuente, David Shaw, Tom Herman. The answer was no, we're going to get the best quarterback we can get. And whether that's just kind of lip service or whatever, I don't really know. But I do think that if you are in charge of a program like Clemson and you're Dabo Sweeney, I don't think you can afford to think that way. When you break down your roster, there aren't unlimited numbers. You have to allocate responsibly. I don't think coaches are thinking that way based on who I spoke to. I don't think they will. You know, And, and I think the caveat or the asterisk might be places that run very unique schemes. So maybe I'm thinking about a Chip Kelly or God, who's another guy in that class? Not option schemes, but schemes that require... Yeah, like Dan Mullen. I mean, they... Yeah, like basically you need... You, you essentially need to have multiple skills. So, and the chances that you're at that point as an 18-year-old to be able to do both is obviously limited. No one is... There's only one Justin Fields per class or whatever. Um, those are the places where you might see guys take a flyer on two QBs and one guy is really fast, but he's work as a thrower. But by and large, I don't think places are going to change the way they recruit. I think they'll keep going after the top five guys every year because that's the blueprint. You know, that's how they've always done it. The take that I didn't like in all this, and I, I saw a few people making it, not a ton, but the idea that, that Clemson shouldn't have switched quarterbacks because Kelly Bryant of what he did last year and that he won or he helped them win the A&M game, I thought that was an asinine take. I mean, yeah, that's ridiculous. I mean, look. Look, Kelly Bryant did some nice things and had some skills. If to me, it was pretty apparent based on a, a fairly decent sample size that they weren't going to be good enough to win a national championship with him at quarterback. I thought that was obvious. I know they won the A and M game. He was not great. He he did a couple. He, he did a couple good things. They they had those touchdown drives early in the second half that put him up. But let's let's be real about that A and M game. They were hanging on by their fingernails at the end of that thing, and there were three opportunities for him to lead that offense out there and and salt the game away, or at least even get keep the ball for a little while and help out the defense. And he went like three plays, four plays, five plays, and it wasn't good enough. Like I just left that A and M game thinking, yeah, they won, but man, they better hope Trevor Lawrence happens and quick. And you know what? He did happen. He happened at Georgia Tech, and Georgia Tech's not Texas A&M. But Kelly Bryant went in that game to start two series, did absolutely nothing. Clemson barely touched the ball in the first quarter because of that, and Georgia Tech went on a couple drives. And then Trevor Lawrence went in, and the whole game flipped. And he's getting better day by day, week by week. Like, this is a move they had to make. And as Dabo said... And I totally believe him. This had no, That had nothing to do with redshirt rule. Nothing. That had 100% to do with the way they played. If Kelly Bryant had gone out there and gone touchdown, touchdown, touchdown to start the game, I guarantee you he's starting this week. And he's not, and he didn't, and he wouldn't transfer. Yeah. And part of me, and, and I, this is a really good question. I should try to get answered by someone at Clemson um, is I wonder just how much last year's Sugar Bowl played into this. 
you know, right. how much Did that, that was on right. people's minds in the offseason. Because he won 18 of 36. You know, he threw two picks. He didn't get anything done on the ground. And obviously, sacks were accounted for in that. But I just have to think that when you're making that process in your, in your mind, in your Dabo or your Jeff Scott or your Tony Elliott or your Brandon or whomever, you have to think about what Kelly Bryant did in that game. Because to win the national title, you got to beat Alabama. So if you focus on that game, and then, like you said, you look at Trevor Lawrence, and I, I think you can say two things, and they're both true, and they're not dismissing anybody or anything. Kelly Bryant could start for a lot of teams in the country. He just can't start for Clemson. Because I think, and obviously the coaches agree, that Trevor Lawrence is a better quarterback. And that's not saying Kelly Bryant isn't a really good quarterback. He's just not as good as Trevor Lawrence today and next week and the week after that and a month from now. You know, So he'll get his opportunity. It just won't be a Clemson because he's not the best quarterback on the roster. You know what I mean? I agree 100%. Now, let's get into this texting thing, all right? Um, and maybe I'm just kind of like getting old in my late 30s here. But to me, like after – all you've been through with that team that you can't just go tell Dabo face to face that you're leaving. And that's the only thing I'm going to criticize Kelly Bryant for the only thing, but I mean, a text message, bro, come on. Do you think he used emojis? I don't know, broken, but a I broken heart. Emoji. That's not funny. That's not funny. Hey, but you know what? I agree with you. Like, I'm not going to tell like a, I think when both of us, you were much more than I, but when both of us were 21, 22, you're not totally working. No, I mean, they're kids. Yeah. Yeah. They're still just kind of getting there. And I know in that situation, that scenario, there was the chance that me and millions of others might've taken that route. So I can't criticize him too much, but obviously it might be a moment that when he's older and he looks back on it, he'll, want to do differently you know and maybe he'll look back on his Clemson time and appreciate it and love it and maybe he does right now but I'm not going to criticize him for texting I don't obviously you should go and have that conversation and hash it out and make your mind and and say it in person but um yeah I I, I, I'm curious you know what I I saw it after the fact you watched it live did Dabo have a reaction to that text thing was that just kind of an aside did he uh, I, I seem like saw, he had a response to it no i only saw the the tweets i didn't actually see the comments my, my whole thing is like the downside of social media the downside of how much we're on our phones it really is changing the way people interact with one another per- personally and i do sort of wonder like like my, my nieces and nephew are like seven and and four and i sort of wonder like the way they're going to grow up. Like I can still remember a time before the internet. I can remember a time before I had a cell phone. They will never be able to remember that. And, <laughs> and like, do you watch the show uh, black mirror? No, I mean, I know of it, but I don't watch it. Yeah. I mean like black mirror is sort of, it's sort of like the twilight zone. Like they're all right. different. They're all different stories, but they all kind of converge around the theme of how technology changes the way we deal with situations and it's kind of a semi-futuristic type of show and and it that does sort of freak me out right where we're going where we think it's okay to avoid conflict by texting that's not 
a good thing for society. I, I think the art of knowing how to give somebody bad news, the art of knowing how to have a contentious conversation face to face is something we're losing as a society. And I really lament that. For sure. For sure. By the way, are you going to watch Maniac? Speaking of Netflix. I, I, yeah, no, I am. That are a little bit out there. Uh, last night, it was late. I was looking for one thing to watch before I went to bed. I did not watch Maniac. I started to watch a different show, but I watched the preview. Like, you know when you are browsing on Netflix and, like, you click on yes. the show and it gives you, like, the preview? I did watch that, and it looked very intriguing. It looks like Legion. Do you watch Legion on FX? I do not. Okay. I happen to watch that. I watched the first, like, four or five episodes. It reminds me of that. Um, but anyway... Hey, what, what's your what's your favorite obscure Netflix show, by the way? Uh, great question. Great, great, great question. I'm going to have to get back to you on it. i got to rack my brain. That's a great question, though. Cause like, great I, question. Because there are some. You can do a deep dive on Netflix. Yes, yes. And start, like, especially back in the day when, like, before the new Netflix, like, for me at least, where, like, it would show you, like, you might also, like, on the bottom, and all of a sudden you've gone, like, 60 pages in, and you're like, oh, man, how do I get back to the beginning? Um, that's a great question, though. You can find some weird stuff on Netflix, for sure. For example, uh, uh, suggestions for me somehow, as of two nights ago, was a 9-11 conspiracy movie. I, I found that, but that's the kind of weird stuff you can find on Netflix. Well, like even different series. So um, every now and then I will put out on, on Twitter, like, hey, give me a recommendation and for a Netflix series. And everyone sort of gives me, oh, well, you got to see Ozark. Well, I've already, I'm already caught up on Ozark, right? I've seen Narcos. I'm not watching that show. Ozark's good. I'm it's not good. watching. No, do we need another show about people thrust into dangerous situations and well, they're dealing with other stuff and all that? You know what I mean? Well, that's sort of like <laughs> every like... show. That's every show. But, um, <laughs> that's just for every show, yeah. But, no, but they, they throw out the obvious ones like Ozark, seen it. You know, Narcos, seen it. The Crown, seen it. You know, I've seen the big ones. I've seen the ones that everybody knows about. Give me something obscure. So somebody gave me last week Broadchurch. That was very good. Yeah, hey, Broadchurch was good. Uh-huh. First season is good. I, the first I don't season. think the second season was very good. Yeah, I, I I did delve into the second season and then kind of bailed on the first episode, but I may I may keep it with it. Uh, the one I liked was Occupied. Have you seen that one? No, haven't seen it. It's a Norwegian uh, show that uh, is about Russia having kind of a semi-invasion of Norway because the Green Party got elected to run Norway's government and decided to shut down oil production. And and the EU basically, uh, because of that, because they weren't getting their oil, allowed Russia to go in and restart oil production. It's actually quite an interesting show, and it's semi-scary realistic um interesting uh it's good i recommend it if you don't mind subtitles i know i don't at all two of my favorite things are uh are are reading and being entertained occupied good all right um let's talk about a story you did that ran today about the lack of black head coaches still an issue that college football college sports is grappling with and you start it from the perspective of James Franklin and Willie Taggart being named by their peers as the most overrated coaches in the country in an anonymous survey that I believe was done by Dennis Dodd from CBSSports.com. 
what did you learn in reporting that story? What is your main takeaway? Uh, to me, the main takeaway is that things are improving. Uh, they're just improving at a very glacial rate. And I think you look at the last decade in 2008, after Sylvester Croom got fired by Mississippi State, there were just three black coaches in the in the FBS. And there are 124 teams or 122. There are 15 this year at 130. And that's 11%. It's a little bit of an uptick. But it's just wildly underrepresented in terms of having coaches of color as head coaches in the FBS, particularly when you look at the fact that 56% of student athletes in the FBS are black. Um, so I think that's an issue. I think it's a crucial issue because of diversity in sports is important. Diversity in our country is important, but also diversity in leadership roles is important, especially when the leadership roles are in charge of predominantly or at least majority black locker rooms and black teams in football. So I think that's important. And I think that's a crucial factor for athletic directors and educators, administrators to kind of chew over as they look towards the next hiring cycle. Um, in terms of factors, I mean, the clearest factor of all is the fact that just as head coaches aren't properly represented in terms of white and black head coach, there aren't enough black coordinators. I mean, I went through the Big 12 and I looked at their coordinators and co-coordinators. I found three black coordinators out, out of 25 spots in that conference. So it just doesn't make any sense because there are, as you know, as well as anyone, there are hundreds, dozens of, of qualified and viable black coaches right now working assistant coaches who should be considered for head coaching jobs, who should be considered to be coordinators. And not everyone, just as across the country, not everyone needs to be considered for Texas or for USC, but there are job openings that coaches who are qualified are being overlooked for. And I think the, the root issue is why that is and what the cause of that is. And I think there are varying answers to that question. And I think the, probably the, the smartest one and the safest one is that just as there's an underrepresentation of coaches of color, there's an underrepresentation of ADs of color right now and I, in the FBS. I think 14 out of 130 athletic directors are black in the FBS. So, you know, it's almost inevitable that there will be people who don't agree with the sentiment. And I think that's just the nature of our country and nature of our readership. But I hesitate to say that it's not a crucial issue because I truly believe that it is a crucial issue for coaching um, right now in the FBS and across all levels of competition in college football. Yeah, I will say, at least on the athletic director side, the last two years, the diversity among the athletic director ranks has actually increased at a pretty good rate. Uh, the hires that have been made, a lot of women, a lot of minorities – uh, in various uh, athletic director roles, a lot in FBS, some in, in Division I uh, more broadly. Uh, but the point about coordinators is spot on, and I, I don't know why that is, and I don't know what can be done about it. Uh, if you go back, I mean, very few coaches, if you, if you look at it, have had uh, coordinators who worked under them who are minorities go on to be head coaches. Jim Harbaugh is sort of the exception to the rule because he's had multiple uh, former assistants who've become FBS head coaches who are minorities. Derek Mason, Willie Taggart. Uh, there might be one other. That David I'm, Shaw. David Shaw, sure. Um, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, that's that's where the root issue is for sure. Um, th the other part about it is, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just going to say that uh, I'm not saying that we should interpret too much into this. 
anonymous, like individually as people, you, you interpret it as you wish. That anonymous survey, it listed nine coaches, and that's we don't know who all, all nine are. It's just when they listed that survey, they listed four names who got 20% to 14%, and then they said five other coaches at 11%, 12%, whatever. Of the nine coaches, the three that were mentioned, three that were mentioned were Shaw, Taggart, and Franklin. Whatever you say about Willie Taggart, based on his record, that's fine. And, and obviously there are layers to that conversation. You have to look at the situation at Western Kentucky and South Florida when he arrived, the situation at Oregon when he arrived. They're obviously mitigating factors. But by no objective measure, and I am, and you are, what I guess you would call an expert in college just because we get paid to do it, and this is what we focus on, and you a lot of other stuff, but you are focused on college football. Under no objective measure are those guys overrated, Shaw and Franklin. I mean, by none. You find one. So I asked Franklin what he thought of that, and he called it concerning. And he was honest about it. His quote is, you sit here and you say, well, of all the coaches in the country, these are the coaches that are mentioned. That seems odd. Seems odd. So at the same time, I do believe, based on that anonymous survey, that there's an undercurrent. And these guys have to fight against that. Because you're seeing it in that survey that for those three guys to be in there, and those two in particular, makes no sense by objective measurement. And I just wanted to say that because I do think that Franklin thought it was important. I know Willie and David Shaw thought the same thing. It's important to notice, to take note of the fact that those guys should not be there. And certainly David Shaw and James Franklin have no business being on that list. I mean, James Franklin won nine games at Vandy, back-to-back years. He goes to Penn State. He wins a Big Ten championship in his third year. Is that right? Third uh, year? Yes. Third third year wins the Big Ten. Fourth year gets to a CFP New Year's Six Bowl. I mean, we can always go back and look at coaches and say they blew a game here or there or they, they made a call we didn't like and that kind of stuff. But on balance, I, if you think James Franklin is overrated as a football coach, I just have to question your sanity. Well, I also have to question your motives. Yeah, and your I have motives. have to question right. what you're looking at. Exactly. So, and I and I thought that was not something that obviously fit into the. And I don't know how to phrase it. It's an important factor to think about. There are 15 black coaches in the FBS, and as James Franklin said, and he spoke for himself, Shaw and Willie, all of those guys, or at least the three of those guys, and I would assume if those three feel that way, then the rest do as well. They feel, in Franklin's words, "quote like we carry an extra weight." And keep that in mind. And, and Willie Taggart himself has said in the past that he wants to be the first African-American coach to win a national championship. These guys feel an enormous sense of pressure and obligation. And fair or unfair, because all coaches pressure, I do think for that group, and especially for guys who are at a very high level, for James, David, and Willie Taggart, that extra weight is just something that, you know, it's just something that you can't really ignore. And, and I think they feel it, and I, and I think that we should appreciate that as well, the fact that they feel that weight on their shoulders. Speaking of which, uh, there is a big game involving James Franklin this week. I happen to think this is one he will lose. Ohio State at Penn State is by far the most important, will be the most watched game of the weekend. Uh, are you going? Yes. Yes, I figured you I'll were. I'll be there on Saturday. That's, that's what I thought. Um. Look, just flat out, I think Penn State's very good, and they could certainly be 
at home in that environment play above what they've done. I just question whether their defense is good enough to stop what seems like a freight train with Dwayne Haskins in the front cabin. Do you think the same of Ohio State, just based on TCU, they got gashed for big plays, Robinson went for 300? Do you, does the same apply for Ohio State on the road, whiteout game? I think, well, look, I, I, I would say potentially, and I do think Ohio State's defense is much weaker without Nick Bosa, but I think that TCU game was a little bit deceiving in that, you know, it's a team that they don't play all the time. Gary Patterson emptied the chamber in terms of game plan and everything they tried to do to give themselves a chance. Um, Ohio State is susceptible, and, and they will give up points. Like, I think Penn State scores at least 28. I just think I think Ohio State could score 45. That seems to me to be the sort of game that we're going to see. You know, and I don't know. I haven't seen anyone disagree with it. I think this is going to be high scoring as hell. And that's fun. That's great. Because last time I think I was there for an Ohio State-Penn State game, it went to overtime, and it was like 24 or 21 or something, or whatever it was. So I do think it's going to be a fun game. Um, and I think if you give Penn State an advantage in the home field, because Ohio State can say whatever they want, but it's a major advantage. Uh, Trace McSorley being a senior, that's the better QB. I know Haskins is fantastic. I think McSorley's better. If it's going to be that sort of game where each team is in the high 30s, it's turnovers that'll do it you know, to me. And I can't really decide if I can fully buy into Dwayne Haskins as being this guy who can be a Heisman Trophy contender, who can be electric, who can go into an environment like this and do it because we haven't seen it yet. Um, so for me, it's turnovers. And for that, really close to picking Penn State, I am picking Ohio State. I do think they'll just outscore them. Like you said, I, I think it's going to be one of those like 41-35 kind of games, which will be a blast to watch. And uh, eventually, Penn State will, will have enough in the tank. But I do think this is a really good game. And I will this like if that's the score and I'm right, Penn State's clearly not done in this thing. You know what I mean? I still think they're in the chase for it. Um, it would be obviously be a rock and a hard play in the East, but, you know, I mean, stranger things have happened. Ohio State team close, and they run the table. Who knows? So, like you said, hell of a game, and one of the most impactful games of the year when all will be said. The other game involving top ten teams is Stanford at Notre Dame. Notre Dame is a five-and-a-half-point favorite. It will be played – at 7.30, the same time as the Ohio State-Penn State game. That's Eastern time. Uh, it's one of those games that makes me glad I put a uh, another TV into my office so I can watch multiple games at once. And Because yeah. you, you want to have eyes on both screens. It, 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 to me, those two games going head-to-head, it's like, I don't know how you choose. Um, It'll be like we... going back in time. It'll be like the future against the past. Because Penn State... Ohio State is going to be, if we're right, high scoring. I think Notre Dame Stanford, as you probably agree, is going to be sluggish in well, comparison. I mean, it could be. I mean, what do we make of Stanford coming off the game against Oregon that they should not have won? They they were lucky to win. Uh, the the game turned on the fumble return and and Mario Cristobal uh, deciding to try to get a first down instead of kneeling on it and bleeding the clock. <laughs> Stanford's got a. Sort That's of, great. Uh, I'll tell you. Go ahead. The the, te- the text I got from a, a guy at Stanford after that game was never a doubt. And I yeah. said, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But still, yeah. you know, I kind of felt Stanford was going to win that game. And I know I can say that now and I can say it after they won. But Stanford just 
seems to win them. Well, you didn't think they were going to win it after they were. They, 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 you didn't think they were going to win it when they were one yard away from going down thirty-one to seven. I did. I swear. Come on. I swear to you. Come on. I said this to colleagues this week on video. I swear to you. When it was twenty-four to seven, twenty-four to seven, I still thought Sanford was going to come back. I did. I truly did. I truly did. I wouldn't lie about that. I mean, that's just a stupid lie. I would not. I'm telling you. I thought they'd come back. Now, obviously, at, at thirty-one. At, 30, what was it, 31 to 28, and they're running out the clock, uh, I had a different thought. But I want to get, this question is not for me. This is a question for Dan Wolken. Give me your, and you wrote about it in the Misery Index, which was a classic. Just give me a minute on the crystal ball decision and its potential aftermath. Well, I was talking to somebody this week who, uh, let's just say, is is close to the situation at Oregon. And they kind of defended it by saying, look, you still would have had to punt the ball. You're three yards away from a first down, right? I mean, it's second and three. You got two plays to, to, to run to try to get the first down to really put it away. If you kneel on it, then you have to punt, you know, maybe with like 12 seconds left or something like that. Uh, and, you know, God knows what can happen. If you go back to the Michigan-Michigan State game from 2015, crazy things can happen, right? Uh, and I get that, and maybe I was initially a little too harsh on Cristobal. Um, you know, I I always said that after that Michigan-Michigan State game, the teams should have in their playbook basically what I call like a waste 10 seconds play. You know, where you, you, you like line up your fastest player in the shotgun, you snap the ball to him, and just have him run backwards – and then turn and like fire the ball as hard as he can out of bounds. <laughs> the the Colt McCoy. No, no, that that was that was the Big Ball Championship when there was one second. Am I doing that right? Was that Colt McCoy? I I, I can't remember. Like, yeah, but like that, I understand the idea. That's the idea. I like the idea of throwing it in the air as high as you can. Maybe having a walk on super strong discus thrower. Just come in and say, "Will you send this ball into orbit for eight point four seconds?" It's not a bad idea. Yeah, or, or in this case, killer. yeah, or in this case, like you could just run backwards and take a safety, right? And maybe that runs out the clock. Except if, right? Wait a minute, hold on. So, what are the rules? Let's say, let's say Oregon had done that, and let's say there were three point one seconds on the clock, and it, if he had run, and it was like fourth down, let's just say, and Oregon had held on the play. And he had run out of bounds at like his own thirty. Stanford would get the ball back with an untimed down. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I guess theoretically. Okay, so I just, I just, I just <laughs> well, yeah, it's very theoretical. But I think that's the flaw in the idea. I don't. I like it though. I do like the idea that you that you would just run around in circles for a couple seconds. Either it's not way, a bad idea. I'm being serious. It's not a bad idea. Either way, that that is um, one of the most gut wrenching losses by a team I can remember. Stanford, on the other hand, you know they fly home elated. Now they got to turn around and go on the road again to Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame can win this game. I think they will win this game. I think they're rejuvenated by the Ian Book uh, tr- uh, quarterback change I, at night. I think they're very good defensively. Stanford's had a hard time running the ball so far this year. I like Notre Dame here. Yeah, um, don't disagree. I'm taking Stanford, but obviously it's a toss-up. Um, I think it's to Notre Dame's advantage that there's not a um, – God, 
I can't believe I'm about to say this, but there's not a book on Ian Book. You know what I mean? There's not like a ton of tape to digest. I mean, there's a game, but you can't really get a good grasp and a good read on it. Just exactly what it's capable of. Like, for example, I didn't know that he could run the ball. Like, I really didn't know that. And I think a lot of people in our position didn't know that because we're not there at practice every day and we don't know a lot about Ian Book. I did not know that he could get things done on the ground to the extent that he did. He scored twice against Wake. Um, but still, I mean, he does prevent some advantages from the fact that Stanford isn't totally sure what he's capable of. Um, I like Stanford just because I, I think I know more about Stanford. And to me, Notre Dame is like kind of one of those pretenders at this point because they don't really know what they're about. I don't know what they're capable of. We'll find out on Saturday night. Um, I just took Stanford because they seem a little more reliable at this point. And I don't really deduct for winning at Oregon the way they did. I mean, it took some mental fortitude to do it. So did I like bump them up to number five in my poll? No, they stayed where they were because they were lucky to win. But I still think it showed a little bit something about David Shaw on that team that they were able to pull it out on the road. Well, we, have, we haven't heard a lot about this yet uh, in the national media. I suspect we will if Notre Dame wins this game on Saturday, but um, if, if Notre Dame wins, like you can start talking about them in the playoff in a very serious Absolutely. way. Almost, almost like if they don't, and I'm being serious, like this is not hyperbole. And, and I know that it's kind of ridiculous to say when it wouldn't even be October 1st yet. If they beat Stanford, like they really shouldn't lose another game. And I'll read you the teams at Virginia tech. They should win that game. Yeah, I mean, look, Stanford. I mean, look, Virginia Tech is better than what they played last weekend uh, against Old Dominion, obviously. But there's no question Notre Dame, from a talent standpoint, should win that game. Uh, and then we have uh, also the fact that they won't have Josh Jackson, you would think, obviously. Uh, you got Pitt. You got Navy, Northwestern, Florida State at home, Syracuse at home, at USC. I mean, it's Tell wide me open. Yeah, it's wide open. If they you almost would have to say that if Notre Dame wins this game, another takeaway is if you're Washington, if you're the loser of Penn State, Ohio State, if you're an Auburn, if you're a Georgia, or even, I hesitate to say Alabama, but if you are the team that you think you might lose the SEC title, you're petrified. Because Notre Dame at 12-0, and regardless of who they play from September 29th on, is, I mean, obviously, 12-0 Notre Dame is a top-14 in the college football playoff. And a Power 5 champion, Two champions, theoretically, obviously, will be on the outside looking in because Notre Dame took a spot. I agree. All right, let's go to another matchup of top 25 teams. This one starts at noon. This is a game I'm going to be really interested to watch. It's West Virginia at Texas Tech. Texas Tech, we sort of wrote them off week one because they got beat by Ole Miss and did not look very good. Uh, but they got their biggest win maybe of the Cliff Kingsbury era last weekend. They went to Stillwater and they blew out Oklahoma State. It was 41-17. Uh, that defense really stepped up. And uh, I think this is a danger game for West Virginia, who has played great. I mean, I, West Virginia's played as well as anybody in the country outside of Alabama. Now, they haven't played anyone with a lot of heft. But uh, I think this is a spot where uh, Dana better have his team's full attention. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I'm just like, my head is spinning on Oklahoma State because with a span of seven days, I went from saying, oh, they're legit because they just beat the hell out of Boise to then losing at home to Texas Tech, who beforehand I thought was very average. Um, when I when West Virginia entered the year and played Tennessee, 
my thought was, if you're as good as we say you are, you got to beat Tennessee by 20 points. And they did. You know, and I give them credit for that because that's what a really good top 10 team does is they beat the hell out of a crappy team, which is Tennessee. Um, this is like that same kind of barometer for me. And if I'm still on the fence about West Virginia, and I get the sense that you are too, just because we don't really have a lot of sample size. If you're as good as you think you are, or as has some people in our profession have said you are all summer and all September, they better go in the Lubbock and win. You know, they better win by 10 or 14 points because I still don't think Texas Tech is that great. I think they're a good team. They'll win seven or whatever. Um, so it's another prove me game for West Virginia. Um, and I think they're used to that, but I would like to see them go in there, win by 14, even in a tough kind of rowdy road environment, because that's what they should do. They're number 12 in the country. You should beat Texas Tech by 10 or 14 points. All right. Uh, briefly, just very briefly, a couple things I'll get your opinion on. One, does Syracuse have any shot to upset Clemson? They're 25 and a half point underdogs in Death Valley <laughs> in a revenge game for the Clemson Tigers. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, they have a chance, but I don't think they're going to. Um, but did we say that Clemson had Syracuse had a shot last year in the Carrier Dome? No, no, we didn't. We uh, did not. And this is now uh, Trevor Lawrence on the hot seat. Oklahoma plays Baylor. I think Oklahoma will win and win handily. There are some people sounding the alarm over Oklahoma based on nearly getting uh, nipped by Army last week. I don't want to panic because I just feel like army is one of those teams. If you don't take them seriously, they can, it can just go sideways on you. They held the ball 45 minutes, terribly frustrating for an offense like Oklahoma, which wants to run a bunch of plays. Um, I'm not ready to go crazy about Oklahoma yet, but I do want to see them bounce back this week. Yeah. And, and just like an, uh, like a free advice. Like if you were at a power five conference, and you're not like in the ACC Coastal when you play Georgia do Tech. It. Just don't schedule Army. Don't do it. I mean, I love to watch Army because they're just like so precise. And I thought that was a masterclass that they put on, even in a loss. I, I think I saw a video where they got like standing O from like one portion of OU's fan base, like by that tunnel, and totally deserved. That was awesome. Awesome. But don't play Army anymore. Dan Mullen goes back to Starkville this weekend. I did a video where I said, <laughs> yeah, this was good where I have given permission for Mississippi state fans to boo Dan Mullen. And I know that a lot of the hoity toity media is going to call out Mississippi state fans. You should be grateful for what he did for you. I mean, it's okay to, you, you can be grateful and I'm sure they are. It's also okay to boo the hell out of him. He's, he's a Florida guy now. Like you offered him $6 million. He said, I, I can't get it done here. I got to go to Florida. And I think that's I think that's booable. I'm perfectly okay if they boo him. Yeah, I think booing is is the right is your right as a fan. If you pay a ticket to go, I prefer that you didn't boo the kids who are playing for free. But the guys on the sideline, boo to your heart's content and bang those cowbells. Um, the question I have for you is: He's clearly going to get booed, but do you think there's still going to be like let's just throw a number out there, and not that the number means anything, but like do you think ten? percent of that fan base will like applaud him and if so don't you think that they should there should be some people there who still applaud him because he did a hell of a job i think they can applaud him in 20 years okay that's fair like there's a time limit on being bitter 
in sports and like eventually like he'll move on and he'll do whatever he's going to do at Florida and Mississippi state. They're going to have Joe Moorhead and then whoever the next guy is and whoever the next guy is. And we'll see what happens like with their program. But uh, at some point, yes, you put all that in the past, but he went to a conference rival. You got to play them. Like I, I, I don't like, I hope Mississippi state fans are, are just booing him like crazy and if uh, if Mississippi State wins that game by five touchdowns, I hope they take a lot of enjoyment out of it. No, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. All right. One other game that interests me is South Carolina going to Kentucky. This is the first week that Kentucky's kind of gotten the national buzz behind them and a lot of attention on Benny Snell and the job that uh, Stoops has done with that defense. I actually pick South Carolina. This is this is a classic upset spot for me, and I think South Carolina is pretty good. Like they've gotten people are kind of off their bandwagon because Georgia blew them out, but Georgia's going to blow out like basically everybody they play. I like South Carolina here. I think this is the letdown week. What say you? Totally agree. Totally agree. I think that Georgia game clearly like while being enormously disappointing for South Carolina and for their fan base, I don't think it's truly indicative of what we thought South Carolina was before the year, which in my opinion, an eight and four, maybe a nine and three team based on the East, though with Clemson, that's going to be tough. An eight and four football team that's anywhere in your poll between number 22 and 28 or 30 or whatever. Which is and about what Kentucky is. doesn't change that. Yeah. And that's about what Kentucky yeah, is. Yeah, so that's Kentucky. I just think South Carolina is a better football team. Um, and I do think they'll win. It, it is not, I wouldn't even call it really a trap game because Kentucky is not like looking past anyone because they're still new to this. But I do think South Carolina is going to win because I just think they're still the second best team in the East, you know, and Kentucky's a really good story. I'm glad they're getting their week and I think they'll have more weeks to come the rest of the year because they'll beat a bunch of teams. And they may win eight games, but yeah, I agree with you. I think South Carolina is going to, going to go in there and, and get the win. All right, any other games you want to discuss? Because that's about it for me. Yeah, do you think Kansas will win this week at Oklahoma State? No. What do you make of Oklahoma State's uh, um, violation of the prior restraint obligation that accompanies our First Amendment rights as Americans? <laughs> um, you're obviously talking about Mike Gundy and the threats uh, that were made to reporters not to ask about Jalen McCleskey, right? That's what you're talking about. Yeah. So Let's I'm finished with that yeah, with, so, with the heart warmer. So, um, look, it's, it's ridiculous to tell reporters you can't ask about something. And if so, we're going to take away your access. That's like you said, I mean, it's almost criminal, right? Uh, but so I, I made some calls about this today, actually, uh, just to sort of see if there was anything else going on there. You know what, if there was a story that maybe was behind the, story honestly uh from what i was told mike gundy prepped his players to be asked about mccleskey you know and basically just said you might get asked about this say no comment or whatever which is fine right um something got lost in the translation and, you know, from what I understand, I mean, maybe that there's maybe Mike Gundy and his SID aren't on the same page all the time. Does that sound like something that might, might ring true to you? 
it, it, I would say that. I think that's true. Um, in that sense, though, no, no, majorly different than a lot of other places. Sure, sure. But you know, is it possible? Is it plausible that maybe Gundy, um, you know, said something that they didn't really either flesh out, or that because he and his SID are not totally on the same page, that um, suggestions were ignored or whatever. Like, I think all that is is possible and, and maybe even true. The bottom line is something something got lost in the translation. And frankly, that is more prone to happen when your football coach doesn't have people he trusts and will listen to. You know, and, and, and it, this was a very easily avoidable thing. And I, I blame part of it on Gundy and I blame part of it on his SID based on my conversations with people today. Interesting. Thank you for that insight. Yeah, I, I know Gavin Lang, that SID there. We've had meals together. He's a, he's a nice guy. I was a little surprised, obviously, at, at his role in it and obviously disappointed in Oklahoma State's decision yesterday. And, and obviously, in my mind, they need to step forward and, and address it. I agree. I think they should apologize. And That's I, all it takes. And I'm not not se- I haven't seen an apology. Have you? I have not, which is why I'm, I, I'm a little bit curious about that. And yeah. Again, like I feel like people listen to this and be, and they're obviously a subset of the population that's fed into the dialogue that says that we're this like these enemy these, of the people. Yeah, enemy of the people. It, it, there's nothing like major that needs to happen here. It's just, you know, I just think the school needs to address it. And like you said, it was the wrong thing to do, you know, because the readers, we're the conduit to the readers, and Gundy speaks to us because he can't speak individually to all the fans. So, I think an apology is in order, not to. And- media well, representatives, but to the people who use them to get interest and get information about their football team. And also, I mean, the two other things. I mean, is there any coach in the country who has manipulated the media into a more favorable image in the last two years than Mike Gundy? I don't think there's a single he's coach been, in the He's done a really good job. It'd be really interesting to think about what's been behind that and who has been orchestrating it because he's obviously done a good job in terms of uh, – I don't know if softening is the word yeah. um, because I don't think he was particularly harsh, yeah. even though we have that clip of I'm a man, I'm 40. No, he's been it's fun. Just, he's, he's just like fun. embraced. Yeah. yeah, he's been fun. It's um, a little bit similar to the like kind of last two years of Boca Lini at Nebraska. Remember that when he would have like the cat yeah. and it would be yeah, like, yeah. ha ha, jokey, jokey, which you knew was a sham. Um, I, I don't think it's a sham with Gundy. I do think that he's a fun guy. I think at times he can find things that he finds enjoyable, but you're right. I didn't think about that, yeah. but that's an interesting and, side you know, to consider. Is Yeah, and, and then the other side of it, too, is like, you know, I spoke to somebody who's close to Jalen McCleskey, and there is, there's really no backstory to this. I mean, it, there, this is what it appears. He didn't like, didn't think his role in the offense was going to help him get to the next level. And so he decided to hit the pause button and find a situation that next year will in his mind, give him a chance to better chance to play at the next level. Like there's nothing else to, and, and obviously that may be hurtful to Gundy and the people at Oklahoma state who maybe didn't see it coming, but like typically if you want to silence people from talking, you just like, it's because there's some like major controversy, right? This is the, from everything I've gathered, there's no major controversy. It's just a football thing. So yeah. And it's very easy. And the lesson for Gundy and anyone who was watching it is if you don't want your players to talk about it, just tell them 
when a guy asks you a question, just say no comment. Well, and, and that's and, fine. That's and he did, but you can't you can't violate the rules. And he did, and then something got haywire after that. All right, that'll end the gotcha. podcast. Interesting. Uh, enjoy Happy Valley. That'll be fun. Hey, by the way, yeah, do, actually, are, are you a creamery? Do you go to the creamery? I've never. Been oh, to I've the, been. I've never I've been, been to the creamery. Is it as good as they say? No, but nothing is. Um, you can't go on a game day Saturday. I only have been like on, you know, when I'm there on a Tuesday or I'm there during the spring for football or something like that. You can't go on a Saturday. I don't even know what the hours would be on a game day Saturday. I'm sure the line is around well, the block. I mean, I don't know how good the Cramery is because I've never been there. But uh, in the ice cream wars, I got to go with Ohio State. Have you ever been to Jenny's Ice Cream? Jenny's? No, I've never even heard of it. Jenny's, J-E-N-I. It is a Columbus, Ohio-based ice cream shop it's like artisanal it's like artisanal ice creams they've got two of them in atlanta i i just was at one uh the other day and um it i had uh cream puff flavor ice cream and it was like wow it was um it was like ungodly delicious like however many calories were in that thing it was so worth it like <laughs> Jen, jenny no jenny's ice cream is the best ice cream i've ever had and it, uh um, that's amazing. That's amazing. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Football Four podcast sponsored by Jenny's. Um, come back next week. Jenny's, for more Jenny's talk. Hey, if Jenny's wanted to give me like a lifetime, whatever for talking about him on the podcast, I would be happy to take it. I would be four hundred pounds. <laughs> I mean, their ice cream is rich, but it is good. So if the creamery is better than that, then I don't. I don't. I wouldn't even know what to say. Gotcha. All right, that's the podcast for today, folks. Uh, have a good weekend. Have fun. If you like us, please go and give us a five-star rating and hit that subscribe button in iTunes. We're also in SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Audio Boom. Hope everybody enjoys the weekend. Dan Walken here, Paul Meyerberg on the other end. This has been the Football 4 Podcast by USA Today Sports. We'll talk next week.